Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. We are so very uh, happy to be uh, hosting this event. Ladies and gentlemen, clap real loud for Chris Heiser. Wow. Thank you very much. Wow. Thanks, everybody, for coming. We're uh, just so happy to be here for on this special day for Skylight. You know, 17 years, bookstore space for almost 40 years. I mean, it's amazing. Um, this is a crucial destination for uh, literary LA and more than that you know it's just a place that is um, very dear to me and it should I think it's very dear to a lot of people so it's a uh, great timing to be here today so thanks for coming and uh, keep coming here um, that said I am so grateful to have these two guys here um, they represent the first the authors of our first two books um, Nigerians uh, in space and goodnight mr. Kissinger and <laughs> Yeah. They're, you know, dream authors. I, they are the reason I decided to really um, commit to becoming a full-scale publisher. We'll have a catalog of at least 10 books for next year and hopefully ramping up very soon to 20 uh, and then 30. Um, we want to be an anchor for literature in on the West Coast. Um, there are so many people that have helped us um, get to this place, and it's it's just going to be it's going to take a community of people to keep doing this at this level. Um, Ricochet, you know, I, we could go on and on about what what it represents and what how special we think it is. I, I I'll just say that I think Ricochet is a publisher that's about not about introducing world literature to American audiences or introducing literature that may not quite fit in you know kind of traditional marketing um, strategies for big publishers um, but but rather um, you know bringing the you know American audiences welcoming them to the party of being a part of this world you know I think there's a reversal going on in our culture and our politics so uh, with all that said, I'm just so happy to be here and introduce Anise and DG and David Shook, who should be up here pretty soon, um, who's our um, chief editor at large, I think. He is responsible for bringing in um, some of the amazing manuscripts. Um, part of what I think makes us special is David's work out in the world. He goes out, he finds manuscripts he meets people more importantly um, we're not sitting behind a desk just reading manuscripts over and over again so um, he's going to talk to these guys after we do a couple of brief readings um, very quickly I'll introduce them um, and you can learn all you know a lot about them just by listening to their stories um, first um, DG Olokutun is um, a remarkable writer. He's the first, he's the author of the first manuscript I read that um, David introduced me to. And he is um, just an incredibly talented individual. Um, he, you know, I'm going to read it because it's better to read it. I'm going to read you a little bit of his bio. Some of you know it, some of you don't. He graduated from the MA with an MA in creative writing at the University of Cape Town, and he also holds degrees from Yale College 
and Stanford Law School. So um, he became the inaugural Ford Foundation Freedom to Write Fellow at Penn American Center, a human rights organization that promotes literature and defends free expression. Um, he, you know, it goes on and on, but he's done tremendous work on behalf of literature and freedom of, of expression, and now he's here um, for his own book. So we're just very pleased to have him. Anis Ahmed um, is the author of Goodnight Mr. Kissinger. It's his debut book of short stories. Um, he and I met a long time ago at NYU, and um, he uh, holds an MA in creative writing, uh, MFA in creative writing from WashU. He has a PhD in comparative literature from NYU, and um, oh yeah, and he went to Brown too. So I mean, between these two guys, like we have a fairly credentialed authors. Anyway, after all that, he, he returned home to Bangladesh where he um, uh, embarked on a non-academic life trying to, um, you know, bring um, on endeavors across the board, including starting the first organic tea garden that is now sold and distributed here in the U.S. and a liberal arts university, um, the first one, right, in, in, in Bangladesh. And he's also the publisher of um, a, a newly started um, daily newspaper there in the city covering everything. So um, with, that, with all that said, um, I'm going to invite DG to read first from and tell you a little bit more about Nigerians, and then we'll hear a reading from Anise, and then we'll have a quick conversation, which hopefully you guys can be a part of. So thanks again for coming. Thank you. This is such an honor to be here. Um, I've said a few times to different people that when you, when you go and see a movie, at the end of the movie, you see the credits roll up and you can see the people who've sort of contributed to the film. Um, but you don't see that with books. And uh, basically it's left up to the author at the end to acknowledge the people um, they want to thank. I would say I think that should change. And that um, in the future you should, uh, my hope would be that you see how many people have contributed to a book. So this has been a really long project. Um, there have been close friends and family who've contributed, um, but then also Chris and, and the folks at Ricochet. And, uh, you know, then you realize that a book like this, uh, which is a novel um, and is very personal and deeply personal, is actually the product of a lot of people kind of coming together. Um, so I try to put that in the acknowledgments, but maybe, maybe that'll be something Ricochet could do in the future. So um, this is, uh, uh, there are basically two storylines in Nigerians in Space. One of them is about a Nigerian scientist who's come to the U.S. He works for NASA, uh, works for the Lunar um, Space Collection, Lunar Sample Collection in Houston. Uh, so he's a, a moon rock scientist, and he's kind of hit a glass ceiling. Um, and uh, some of you may be familiar with or have received an email from a Nigerian prince <laughs> claiming that uh, with just a little bit of help you can uh, get them out of jail and then you get all the, the money that's been uh, trapped in some bank account somewhere. Anyway, that happens to Nigerians too and it's uh, sort of known as a, a, Nigerians also fall for these scams and it's called a 419 scam. Um, so. Uh, this guy, the scientist, thinks, uh, well, is this real? Um, he, he's doing his job, and this Nigerian minister comes and says, hey, listen, uh, I can make you the head of the space program in Nigeria, which you're going to start. And the, the one hitch is you have to steal something from NASA. So he has to decide whether to do it, and everything goes wrong. That's one plot line. The second plot line, which is related to um, this passage, which I'm going to read, is about an abalone smuggler. And in uh, South Africa, there's abalone here off the coast of California. The best abalone in the world is in, from Mexico. Um, but second best is in South Africa. And that's a threatened species. So there's, a, there's an illegal trade. There's not a lot of jobs um, in South Africa. So for people who live in these fishing communities, they'll um, poach the abalone and then sell it. And you could sell it for drugs, um, crystal meth. And, and then there's sort of like a triangle trade with China. Um, so that's where this story comes in. Um, and at this point, the character's name is Thursday Malaysia, so when you hear Thursday, Thursday is the character. Um, he has a good friend named uh, Leon. Leon's his old buddy, but also a bully. Uh, Leon got him into trouble, made him lose his job, and, uh, and then, uh, but Thursday, and then Leon goes to prison as a result. Um, so at this point, 
Thursday's been out trying to get uh, enough money to help Leon make bail. And we don't know what Leon's been up to. We just know he's a tough guy. He has beautiful hair. Um, and and uh, he, he's, uh, he's sort of something of a mystery what, what's happened to him. So this passage, there's a lot of humor in this book, so I just want to point that out. But this is not one of those passages. This is a dark passage. Um, okay, this is called Polsmore Prison. Brother Leon held fast on his bunk when the cell door slid open, never showing, giving away little. He observed but did not focus and heard without appearing to register the words. The guard threw in a prisoner. Leon expressed no more interest than he would in a piece of rubbish on the ground. The other cellmates, eager for excitement, began to harangue the new arrival. The cell contained 30 men in orange jumpsuits. It was about 10 meters by 6 meters deep, with four sets of bunk beds built to accommodate eight people. There was a single toilet and two barred windows that overlooked through an electrified fence coated with razor wire, the golf course across the road, and the taillights of the cars that would snake up the mountain pass to Nordhook Beach. Men could go crazy watching the stream of cars continually escaping the prison of the valley, or seeing the businessmen stroll freely to whack a golf ball into the lush green driving range. Leon had learned to gaze, to unfocus his vision until all about him at Polesmore Prison blurred into a mass of meaningless, energetic movement. Anything else would be used against him. The guard had pushed in a young Kosa boy, maybe 18, whose eyes instantly betrayed a need for protection. The boy scanned the cell for other people from his neighborhood block, then his township, then his tribe. If he was lucky, he would be claimed for sex. But the boy was too slight to be a fighter, and his face had been scoured by malnutrition. He was so ugly that no one would want him. This meant he would be taken by several men at once. Leon had joined the 27 gang to sell drugs, unwilling to become involved with the sex trade. And he enlisted to stave off the rape and to buy time for Thursday to bail him out of prison. The guards had shaved the locks from his head to prevent lice, they said, but he knew it was to break him to begin the rapid dismantling of the real Leon, Brother Leon, and he let them cut them as if he didn't care, tucking one into his jumpsuit. At first he vowed to beat Thursday to a pulp when he got out of prison, but now he felt differently, that he might hug him nearly to death instead. The gang had ordered Leon to pick four fights, two easy targets and two equals, and he'd won each fight handily, pummeling his opponents with vicious poetry to gain respect. After lights out, Leon would remove his lock and finger it like a rosary, sometimes smell it too. The shoving began. The cell gang leaders had ignored the boy, so their minions, used to being pushed around, slid off their sleeping mats. They insulted him in Afrikaans, slurred at him in bad kosa. They pushed him in the shoulder, while another circled around, preparing to trap him in the corner. The boy stumbled back over a mat as others began to hoot. A fist cracked into his jaw, and he blinked stupidly. Leon, unfocused, almost turned away, but held himself from displaying any weakness. It would be cowardly to participate, more cowardly still to disapprove. The boy was so sheepish that the rape would be violent. He might not even survive it. If he fell to the floor, he'd be finished. Then the boy's hand snapped out. The first man fell back, clutching at his arm. The others surged forward. The boy kicked one in the knee and slashed at another with what looked like a slice of paper. He waited for the last to charge, wound tight. Then he kicked himself out of the corner before whipping the paper down on the man's calf. There were howls of pain. His innocent face had changed to one of detached, controlled purposefulness, inviting the others to come at him. He began egging them on, holding the paper above his open mouth like a fang. Come, he challenged with his eyes. Come. He hadn't said a word. Leon focused his gaze. The boy had not acted out of desperation, a feat of luck that could save you for a night or maybe a week, but a strategy that would fail as the groves of iron bars and putrid food sapped your energy. The boy had also somehow known how the men would behave, but Leon didn't recognize him. The gang members in the cell seemed equally puzzled, trying to determine his allegiance. Was he a Tsotsi? A transfer from Block B, a 26. If he was an insider, no one seemed to know him. 
His arms were bare of tattoos. Leon hated allegiance and knew an opportunity to break free when he saw one. He called to the boy in Kosa. The boy approached slowly, muscles taut. Let's see that weapon, Brew. The boy scanned Leon up and down. Then he nodded. It was a thin, white, plastic ruler, its edge sharpened to perfection. He must have hidden it in the lining of his jumpsuit. Still, Leon was impressed that the guard hadn't caught it. Weapons usually came in through the windows or were fashioned from the frames of the beds, sometimes even a thick chip of plaster from the wall. The guards would strip you before you entered, probe your ass. Not bad, Leti, Leon said. What's the name? Lebo. I've been looking for a partner, Lebo. Lebo works alone. Is it? Leon said, handing the ruler back. I do too, but in Polesmore prison, I think exceptions are in order, don't you? He ran his hand over his shaved head, his fingers groping blindly for his locks. Then he reached into the pocket of his jumpsuit, remembering, and gave his lock a caress. He smiled. I'm Leon. The boy's eyes suddenly flashed white. He took a step forward, peering down at Leon with intensity. A pail of doubt drifted through Leon like a ghost. Maybe this was not a boy he could harness, he thought. He tried to hold his gaze, watching the boy's scarred face. The other cellmates began moving away. Lebo does not make exceptions, Leon, the boy said. Lebo does what the Chinaman says. He gripped the ruler in his palm, then coiled his arm to strike. Thanks. You know, now that both of our artists are here too, I just wanted to introduce Paul Waddell, who's our cover artist. Um, they're remarkable co uh, covers from, you know, he's represented by Night Gallery in downtown. Um, he's been generous enough and kind enough to work with us on custom covers and, and sharing his art with us. And that's kind of another aspect of Ricochet that I think um, is special. We're trying to connect with other arts communities like, like Paul's, you know. and. You may have found uh, this postcard on your seats. It is um, for our first ebook series, a comic book by Jihan Sesson, who is right there. Um, and right now, we, uh, it's available. Um, the second issue just came out. And it will soon be available for subscription, too. And it will eventually be, sometime next year, a uh, graphic um, novel in print. Anyway, now on to Anise. Come on, come on up. Thank you. Thanks to Chris for making this book happen, and thanks to all of you for coming out tonight. I'm really excited to be here. I'm going to read from uh, my short story collection, Good Night, Mr. Kissinger. It's a collection of nine stories, uh, loosely structured a bit like uh, the Dubliners. Uh, the city of Dhaka grows uh, older as the stories progress from 1970, right before independence of the country, to the way it is today, 40 years later, 40-some years later. Uh, unlike the Dubliners, the characters, uh, actually, like the Dubliners, the characters grow older, but unlike Dubliners, the city itself also grows older. You see the city changing and transformed through all these uh, events and characters and, and things that happen to them. The title story, Good Night, Mr. Kissinger, is the one story that takes place not uh, mostly in Dhaka, it takes place in New York. It's about a Bangladeshi waiter who works in a New York, in a very posh New York restaurant, and who lost his father during the war and genocide uh, of Bangladesh in 1971, for which many Bangladeshis to this day hold Kissinger as one of many responsible parties for uh, basically condoning it and giving succor to the Pakistanis while this was going on. There's actually a book out right now called The Blood Telegram, which has uh, used some very recently declassified material to truly pin, pin the blame on, uh, on uh, Kissinger. But my story was written before then as I was thinking of you know, issues of this kind of um, global situation, unresolved uh, historical uh, uh, issues. Uh, and in my story, it takes place in a much more uh, simple way. This guy works in a restaurant where Henry Kissinger walks in. and. He lost his father, he blames this man, he's obviously a little bit nutty, and uh, you know, he's faced with the basic dilemma of what he should do now. 
serve him food or kill him. So that's the title story, uh, One Man's Dilemma in uh, Encountering Kissinger. The rest of the stories are really, uh, and, and that too, uh, uh, in many ways, I think, uh, sums up uh, the journey of Bangladesh in 40-some years, you know. Kissinger had famously condemned it as a country that was a basket case right after independence in the early 70s, but in 40 years, it's come a long way and it's in a different place now. So when we say something like, good night, Mr. Kissinger, we're saying bye to another era, another paradigm. And uh, this, these stories uh, chronicle the, the growth and change of a city that in many ways has uh, become you know, much bigger, much more vibrant, but also full of new problems that didn't exist before. I'm going to read to you from uh, a small section from one of the longest stories in this collection. And it's actually from Dhaka as it was in the mid-80s or late 80s, uh, back when it had half the population it has today. It was a much more sort of quieter, more charming city than what it has become today. It's a mega city of about, hundred, uh, about 15 million people today in the late 80s and you know, full of congestion, traffic, and so on. Whereas back then, uh, it, it was a different environment. Uh, most of the houses were only two stories or three stories at most, and they had flat roofs, which you, I see, have in LA as well. But the roofs over there are really part of one's life. You know, you uh, dry clothes there, you hang out there, you have a cup of tea there. I don't know how much that is the case here. I guess some people use their roof as some kind of a, a, a place to hang out or something, but uh, not much in America from what I've seen. So this is a story about uh, this man who's in his 40s now, and to this day he mourns uh, his first love from his late teens um, because of the traumatic way in which it ended. And the small section I will read uh, is about the way he comes to meet the girl that he fell in love with at that time. And, and the rooftop that I mentioned plays a crucial role in it because rooftops have played a, a very important uh, function in the romantic lives of uh, Dhaka city youth through a certain phase of the city's growth. And even in Dhaka, that is no longer the case. So it's a small section about this one guy and his best friend and the girl that he fell in love with. Even as Dhaka expanded, many lives were getting smaller. The prospect of becoming trapped in one of those small lives filled me with dread. Surely there had to be another world, another kind of life, one that would be full of amplitude, perhaps elegance. A determination to find that world took root within me like an irritating pebble that one can't dislodge from inside a shoe. Around this time, I started spending all my time at Rakib's. He was still my best friend, in fact, my only friend. They still lived in Banani. We were in the final year of college. College over there, by the way, is uh, 12th grade. Um, after classes, we ambled over to his place and listened to his music collection, which ranged, from which ranged from Western pop trash to obscure ghazals. Music had replaced football as his chief passion. I had discovered books, but I didn't, the I, but I didn't mind the music. No matter how loudly Rocky played it, I found a good book blotted out the world. I'd be on the sofa reading a book while Rakib drew endless designs on the floor with his fingertips, waiting to flip the cassette. I liked his parents. His father came from work bearing gifts or stories or took us all out for a drive, without occasion, to go eat shish kebab from his favorite roadside shop. What I liked better, however, was his mother's cooking. Often I stayed for dinner, be it a simple chicken curry or elaborate maglai paratas. Her entire oeuvre I found addictive. Or perhaps it wasn't the cooking, but their household that absorbed me. It was a happier place to be. They seemed to live in a house with all the lights turned on. Whereas ours, the only light in it, even my mother, was starting to falter as the cycles of my father's dysfunctions quickened. Rakib talked of going abroad, of finding the right girl, or for now, any girl. He just wanted to have sex first. Come on, think about it. What if you get run over tomorrow? Do you really want to die a virgin? Once a terrible thought occurred to me. Your life is so perfect, if one of us were indeed to die young, it'd probably be you. But I didn't tell him that, at least not that day. I went back to my book without any replies, and he went on about the girl who had moved in next door. The girl, of course, was Aisha. No sooner had he received news of this girl, who possessed three vital qualities. A girl our age, right next door, then um, a girl, 
uh, our age and right next door. Then Rakib dutifully went up to the roof to conduct a ritual inspection. According to him, she possessed three further virtues, a shapely figure, visual availability, and a fairly dependable schedule, which clearly invited a sustained watch. But I refused to participate in these furtive vigils. What the fuck's wrong with you, man? How else are you going to see her? Rakib challenged me. Don't worry, it'll happen if it's meant to be, I said, knowing full well the anguish my apathetic response would provoke in him. Meant to be? It's been two weeks already. Two weeks is not that long. You have to trust destiny, I said, still complacent. Fuck your destiny, man. This isn't going anywhere. And trawling on the rooftop is doing wonders for you, you dimwit. We went back and forth like that. Rakib stuck to his methods and brought back details that he felt were important. Today she sported a purple headband. Today she was accompanied, accompanied by an angry-looking aunt. Today she wore a sleeveless silk shirt. I could not explain to Rakib why nothing could move me to take part in this escapade. Every day at five, the roofs of Dhaka filled with young men like us and even girls like Aisha, longing to see or be seen. A few of them probably even established contact, developed romance or at least friendship. But I wanted no part of it. I suspected Aisha didn't either. If Rakib's reports were correct, she came up mainly to watch over her younger brother as he flew his kites. As I saw it, Rakib would someday go abroad. Rakib would find other forms of exaltation. My destiny seemed far more uncertain. I felt no desire to add the taint of rooftop courtships to all the other ways in which the city had already demoted me. Days passed, Rakib disapproved of me openly. Then one Saturday morning, as I was walking up to Rakib's, I always walked from the bus stop, I saw Aisha in red track pants on the road with a bicycle. Girls our age didn't ride bikes often. This took me by surprise. She stopped at her gate, leaning on one foot, probably deciding if she should go inside or keep riding. I noticed Rakib from the corner of my eye on his roof. In a spasm of wicked wit, I decided to approach Aisha. Not that we knew her name yet. Without ever glancing up at Rakib, I walked straight over to Aisha and introduced myself. I told her I lived next door, which was half true. She did not brush me off, as any girl should, a stranger who approaches her on the street. We talked standing at her gate, and what was meant to be a passing encounter turned into a full-fledged conversation. She told me that her family had just moved back from London, that she went to English medium school not too far away. It came out that we were the same year in school, though she struck me as somehow younger. She did most of the talking. She did not ask me at any point to come inside, but she also showed no impatience to bring our roadside chat to a conclusion. She told me that she didn't have many friends yet and that she felt a little disturbed by the kind of stares she got on the streets. It must be difficult for you, I said. I'm sorry we didn't come by sooner to say hello. That's all right, she said. I could have come over too. Clearly, she was from another world. She didn't know that we were meant to exist on opposite sides of an invisible yet impenetrable curtain. That by talking to me, she was conferring a form of favor on me, the kind not easily granted by local girls. They were terrified of being judged, of conferring any favor on an unworthy candidate. Any girl who was this unaware of local protocols could just as well be a foreigner. By the time I came up to Rakib's, the poor chap was on the verge of committing suicide. That's it? You just went up to her and said hello? What the fuck, man? So you just walk up to a girl and talk to her? Yes, but if you did it, I thought, you'd probably get slapped. And this time I told him what I thought. Even Rakib had to laugh. He threw the cassette tape in his hand at my head and with enough force to crack it on the wall when I ducked. He shook his head and cast me a dismayed look as if to say, how is this possible? How could you be the one to end up talking to her first? Fucking destiny, I told him. That's the story Losing Aisha, and I'll read you a very small uh, paragraph from uh, another story which is called Ram Kamal's Gift, which also is very much involved with the city and the life of the city. This story is about a guy who might be a genius or a charlatan or both, and he is committed to writing what he describes or conceives of as the greatest novel ever written. And uh, he actually conceives it as a collective project. He conscripts a retinue of uh, young people who will uh, co-author this book with him, and it turns into a kind of collective uh, encyclopedia. Um, and this story was... Uh, 
I'll read you the opening line to give you an idea of what this character and his premise is. Ram Kamal, who claimed to be the author of the greatest novel never written, disappeared nine months ago. So when the story begins, Ram Kamal is already no longer in the scene, and his followers are uh, following, you know, searching for him, trying to figure out who he was, where he is, what this project was all about, how it's going to finish. And I'll read a small part uh, which gives you an idea of what the project is or how it gets uh, started and what the purpose of it is. What we need to do now, he said, always in media's stress, is to bring the city and the novel together in a whole new manner. Dhaka's a new kind of city, a glimpse into our post-apocalyptic future, and it's time to find a form suitable to its reality. We were sitting in my store, which he had turned into his primary operating base. He stopped by sometimes several times in a day to leave his keys or pick up messages, to drop off parcels or laundry, to make phone calls or secure an abbreviated meal, to borrow cab fare or cigarette money, and then to return those puny hand loans and conduct complex, confusing arithmetic concerning them. But most importantly of all, he came by to hold his addas. Bahar and Jaydeep were regulars from the start. One of them worked as a statistic statistician at a research institute. The other one was an anachronistic soul, and he resisted any set occupation. Most of the others were students or recent graduates, and many connected to some facet of the writing world. Newspapers, publishing, little magazines, even copywriting and advertising firms. It was the spring after our first meeting, the start of a new millennium, and prophetic goals appeared to be in the realms of the possible again. Ram Kamal held his addas almost nightly, explaining to us the inevitability of this new codex. It will supply this city with a grammar, he said. It can sure as hell be borrowed from places where the streetlights or plumbing work. What we need to write is nothing short of a manual, a manual of this city, a manual that will explore how to be a citizen when the city itself is perpetually in deferral. And that's Ram Kamal's gift. Thank you. So David's going to um, coordinate a little Q&A with uh, you guys and DG and Anise. I just wanted to point out that Ricochet also distributes Phony Media, which David uh, directs. And um, we have that first book here too, which is uh, Shiki Nagaoka, a hilarious book uh, by an amazing uh, Mexican novelist, Mario Bellatin. David, here you go. Wow, Ricochet really got off to uh, with a bang, a um, prison rape bang, but bang nonetheless. Um, Deji, I, just real talk, when I first received an email from you, I thought it was some sort of scam. Uh, I think it's because you asked me for my social security number. Um, your your book is really well researched, not just the um, the prison rape scenes, but also the abalone trade and smuggling industry of South Africa, and even some of the the space elements, the Nigerian space program. I understand have their basis in reality. Could you talk a little about your research? Sure. So. Um you know, I came to the abalone story kind of randomly through, uh, I was trying to learn more about South African history and crime statistics, and I came across this pamphlet that had a lot of information about uh, the abalone smuggling trade. Incredible wealth of information actually written by someone who also went on to write the information that uh, gave me the details for that prison scene, so all the details about the gangs. His name's Johnny Steinberg, incredible incredible author, um, South African author, who I definitely recommend. Um, yeah, the Nigerian space program is real. Uh, I invented it in my head, actually, <laughs> and then it turned out to be real. Um, you know, when, um, and, and, but with a different purpose, I mean, that, you know, I think maybe some of you have seen the movie Gravity, 
and there's kind of like this United Nations of space stations <laughs> and they, you know it starts out the International Space Station and then I think they go to the Russian uh, space station and then they go to the Chinese space station and I was thinking what would the Nigerian space station look like and I put it on Twitter I was like where's the Nigerian space station and someone from India had written where's the Indian space station and it's just kind of funny because you know it, it represents national pride and accomplishment and achievement anyway in uh, Nigeria um, the space station they, they had the space program was conceived to uh, for mostly satellites communications and um, in Nigeria they don't know how many people live in the country and that's important for um, elections and then also for flooding um, the rural areas will get flooded and they think that the satellite imagery can help predict floods and help farmers choose which crops to grow so it's a real thing and um, the first astronaut I think um, I think went up in 2003 and it was a, a young teenage woman um, teenage girl who did one of those flights you know in Apollo 13 if you watch that movie their flight they're weightless it's because they went up in those flight the parabolic flight uh, jets that kind of circled down and that was what she did so they called her an astronaut just to get things going um, so yeah, that's that's the space program. It's actually way more interesting than you could make up and in, in the book. Um, so yeah. Anis, your book, like you said, has a lot to do with cities, uh, especially Dhaka. I had the the pleasure of visiting Dhaka last year, and it is pretty pretty wild. I I think it's in some ways like Los Angeles in that there's an infinite an infinite supply of stories and characters and people. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your own relationship with the city of Dhaka. Uh, for my stories, Dhaka really was the main inspiration. I grew up in that city. Uh, I've seen it change from the 70s to what it is now. To give you an idea, Dhaka at the time of Bangladesh's independence in 1971 had a population of 1 million. Today it's 15 million. I don't know how many places there are on earth where 14 million people have moved into a place in a span of four decades and for the most part had the corresponding infrastructure come up as well. Yes, it's, you know, uh, some in, in many respects inadequate or flawed or faulty, but I think most places would be hard-pressed, even in a rich country like America, to come up with uh, infrastructure for 14 million people in a very concentrated period of time. And uh, that has really altered the city and people like me who were born there or whose parents were already living there from decades before. And then the city as we experienced it. For example, the kind of little scene I described of this neighborhood with little two-storied houses where kids could get up on the roof and have the sort of birth of uh, a very innocent kind of first love happen, that already is kind of impossible. The city is full of high-rises. It's full of even the ordinary apartment buildings are on average six to 10 or 12 stories high. And no one's getting up on the roof. There's no one else. There's no individual houses to look over. And uh, that changes how people live. I mean, as the city has gotten more and more full of people, it has also, uh, lives have actually, in the bigger city, gotten smaller. You know far fewer of your neighbors if you know them at all. Uh, there's less of a sense of neighborhoods and their distinct uh, uh, character. And uh, there is also a you know, a tremendous intensity, as I'm sure uh, David felt it when he was there in the, in the city, because it's... Um, the densest city in the world. It's, it's something maybe not popularly known. It has a population density estimated at around uh, 130,000 people per square mile. So it's 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 kind of intense. I you know I lived in New York for seven years. Um, People in America think of New York as an intense city. I, I go to New York to relax. Um, from after Dhaka, it's you know walking around in the West Village. It's just I, I go to Maryland and I feel like I've gone to like a country or whatever, you know. Uh, my wife's from Maryland. I go to an American suburb. It feels like a country resort. Um, so that's how intense and concentrated the urban experience is in Dhaka. And I wanted to capture what life is like, A, when, you, when a society goes through such a fast and uh, intense transformation, and also what happens in that kind of congestion. Uh, so my stories have to do with, you know, somebody who accidentally triggers a mob beating. You know, he 
he doesn't mean to do this, but he does it, and then he feels bad about it, so he seeks out the victim, and now he has to decide whether he should tell this person who he really is or not. And, and, a, and a variety of other uh, situations, which I think would come up, uh, and, and the, all the ways that uh, I think personal relationship and even personal identity is uh, stressed. And for some of my characters, uh, with, a, with a sense of loss, because there's a kind of life and lifestyle there was that is now being lost forever. And part of my uh, writing was about trying to preserve those memories before they really became too faint. DG, I wondered if just briefly you could tell us a little bit about your work as the inaugural Freedom to Write Fellow at PIN America. So yeah, Penn is uh, an organization that's 90 years old, and you can check out the website at penn.org. Um, and we uh, promote literature and then defend free expression. So at Penn, um, my my beat has been focusing on cases writers who. So you know, one of the the big it's actually more of a question: Who is a writer today? If you can write a poem on your iPhone and um, you get into trouble for it, you post a poem on Facebook, or you post someone else's poem on Facebook, and they go to prison for it, um, should, uh, should, are you a writer? Who's a writer? And um, so that's one of the issues that I'm focused on today. How do we rally behind those people, and how do we go and protect them, and what do we need to do? And then also, um, last week I was at the UN with Nigerian and uh, Chinese writers. And uh, Nigeria has, um, you may have seen the headlines of Boko Haram, um, which is a uh, militant Islamist group, um, which is doing really horrific things in the north of Nigeria going into schools and literally killing a hundred kids in, in a, while they're asleep um, for, because they're receiving Western education. Um, so that was, you know, an issue. And then, and then in China, all the bloggers and writers who are in prison or um, who are afraid of going to prison. So we were kind of pressing those issues with some uh, a Chinese and a Nigerian writer. And um, so, yeah, Penn's a great organization. We have a festival in um, uh, May, April, May. It's amazing. It's called the Penn World Voices Festival. Definitely come out. If you're in New York, check it out. It's really great. And then we have the Literary Awards. You may have um, heard of some of them. And those are in the fall, and they just happen. So. Anissa, I'd like to ask you one more quick question before I open, open the floor to the audience. I wondered, I know this is a, a complicated and very political issue, but it seems like there's a new or just blossoming boom of Bangladeshi writers writing in English rather than Bangla. And I wondered um, why that is, you know, are, are you the Jumpa Lahiri of Bangladesh? I certainly hope not. Um, I would love to have her success, but I don't think I want to write. Uh, Bangladesh has a very uh, strong and unique uh, history of its language. In uh, 1947, when India was uh, both uh, liberated and uh, split up into India and Pakistan, Bangladesh emerged as East Pakistan. And uh, it, it sort of chafed under the hegemonic rule of the West Pakistanis that attempt to impose Urdu as the national language when we had our own language that has a rich heritage and people are very proud of and attached to. So in 1952, students uh, sort of rose up against that. And uh, in the procession, you know, the Pakistani uh, rulers or on their orders, the police shot and killed some students. And the same day next year, uh, you know, people came out spontaneously to mark that date. And to this day, uh, 21st February 1952 is thought of as the spark that led to the eventual independence of Bangladesh in 1971. And uh, uh, some years ago, uh, that date was actually adopted by the UN as the International Mother Language Day. So in the Bangladeshi context, there is a different emphasis on the importance of and need to use Bengali or, or Bangla as we call it and writing in English or any other language in that context has a quite a different uh, sort of connotation and problematic or politics than it does in India where English has uh, had a less problematic history and is uh, much more uh, part of the culture. In my personal case I, I have a very unique situation in that 
an overwhelming majority of uh, English writers from the subcontinent, for them, English actually is effectively the first language. Uh, they come from very Anglophone homes. That's the situation in South Asia. Many homes are like that through generations of use. They uh, come from English medium education. I actually went through 12 straight years of Bengali medium education before I came over to study at Brown. And I started writing in Bengali in my second year. I wrote for three years in Bengali and my brother was the only person there who could read Bengali said so give him my stories and he told me they were no good so I kind of swallowed my pride and in my final year I wrote a story in English just to get into a writing class with Edmund White and you know I thought okay I'm clearly not a prodigy I might as well take a course so I gave it to him to get into the course and my brother read that story and said this is fantastic and to this day I don't know why when I wrote in English it was more convincing first to my hardest critic, my brother, and later to many other people than what I've written in Bangla. So in my personal case, you know, there's some whatever weirdness of psychology where the writing comes out in English. But I think for a lot of Bangladeshis now, what's happening is, on the one hand, actually, the fact that many people are writing in English now is a sign of a certain growth in uh, comfort and confidence with Bangla and its place in the world and in our own lives. People are less sort of uh, insecure or defensive about it. And therefore, there is room to practice in English or in other languages. Uh, but there's also, I think, linguistic reasons for why fiction writers, and especially anyone working in the long form, might gravitate to English. Because even linguistically, Bangla has a different structure than English. In English, you know, every sentence is, virtually every sentence is SVO, no matter how uh, complicated or compounded it might be. That's the structure. In Bengali, uh, the structure is different. The verb comes at the end, and it's possible to write uh, even a kind of narrative form or descriptive form with using very few verbs. And I personally think that poses a problem when you're trying to tell a story or narration which calls for action and movement. And Bangla very easily gravitates towards the lyric. So Bangla lyric tradition is extremely strong. Short stories are terrific and they tend to be very poetic. And I myself, when I try to write in Bangla, and I still write nonfiction in Bangla, I feel like you know, I get all sort of moody and uh, uh, whatever, whereas all I want to do is, you know, talk about whether one should kill Kissinger or not. <laughs> I'd like to open up the floor to the audience. Does anybody have any questions for either of our Ricochet authors? And uh, American jazz, classical music, Broadway theater, and that kind of stuff. For me? Okay. Uh, in Bangladesh, uh for the mass audiences, uh, Hollywood comes uh, far, far behind uh, Bollywood. That's what dominates uh, that region. For uh, much smaller sort of middle, upper middle class Anglophone segment, yeah, Hollywood is very popular. And uh, I don't know if it's OK to say this in America, but 99% of it would be pirated. <laughs> <laughs> and Anise actually has an uncle who's an excellent jazz musician. I've heard him. Any other questions? Yes, the young lady in the front row. I don't think there were, <laughs> there were, there were two, well, okay. Uh, I was really influenced by the person who's on the back who blurbed the book, I'll just say it right now. His name's Mike Nickel, and he's a crime fiction author, and he writes other things. He's also a poet, a South African writer, and he was in the middle of writing this trilogy uh, about, uh, it's called the Revenge Trilogy, which is really dark. If you think that scene was dark, his book is, goes to a much darker place, and it's really uh, just beautiful. And um, he was in the middle of writing that book, so he was teaching. When I studied, I studied fiction in South Africa. He was my teacher. So I got really influenced by that. He was really studying noir and telling us about pacing and language. And, you know, he was really, he really wanted to be ha writing hard-boiled fiction, where he would just, it was all verb and you know, subject. It was really, really simple. Um, so he influenced me a lot, but a lot of it was just totally random. <laughs>
Any other questions? Yes, the um, the blonde woman under the tree. And you talk about the roof tops being very warm. Did you yourself have experiences on the roof tops? No, I was too shy and timid for that. Well, yeah, there were some observations that took place, yes, but but nothing fruitful came of it. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes? When Chris told me it was done. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it goes, I mean, that's why I said that in the beginning, you know, how many people are involved in the process. My, bro my brother, who's sitting right here, read uh, the, the abalone chapter um, in 2006. So, you know, it's just been a really long road, and there have been so many people who've helped it out. But yeah, I think when Chris said it was ready to go. <laughs> Uh, in my case, too, uh, I've, this is the stories, but I've also finished a novel which is actually coming out in December from Random House India. And uh, for me, too, it was when the editor said uh, it was done. But I, I myself felt okay with it. You know, I, I had a clear vision of where I wanted to go with the book, and I felt I had reached that. And I also felt, to be honest, that there were all kinds of little things that one could keep fussing over. But uh, with Chris, uh, as a sort of personal friend and editor, and then also the official editor of Random House telling me, we think it's done, it's ready, I kind of felt like one has to trust that and just let it go and not sit on it, because I don't think sitting on it another seven years would make it a vastly better book and might even worsen it. <laughs> uh, I guess that depends if it's fine wine or vinegar. Exactly. <laughs> Any other questions? Well, if there are no other questions, I encourage you guys to come up here, drink a little wine. It is a great companion to the animal crackers in the half-empty bucket. These books are so absurdly well-priced. You might think it's a Nigerian 419 scam, but they really do offer you the opportunity to have the world and to hold it in your hearts. So thank you guys. I hope you'll come congratulate our authors, that you'll buy their books and come talk to them. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.